you know, usually this time of year, I'm very uh, nervous because I don't know what we're going to do. <laughs> I've been approached by three different people this year with ideas uh, for this class, and they've volunteered to teach uh, five, four, five, six weeks. And I can't believe this is the first year that I've come into this relaxed. <laughs> it's wonderful. <laughs> so I've had a great summer. I hope you have too. And as we assemble again, let's uh, open in prayer. Father God, it's so wonderful to be back together as the Westminster class, a small group of seekers who want to know more about you. And as we do this, Lord, help us remember that we should look inside of us so that our knowledge about you is only a part of our relationship with you. We study now the history of the Reformation, and we ask for your blessing and an understanding of what we're about to study over the next few weeks. And once again, we ask in Jesus' name, not as a magical statement, but as a belief of our relationship that brings us to greater understanding in your love in establishing your kingdom, which has no end. Amen and amen. Amen. Thank you, Dan, and thank you everyone who's here this morning. I know we still have a few coming in, because my wife said she's be, she'd be here, but she's wrangling two children. So we still got some more on their way. And Jerry walks I was like, is that going to be my wife? Uh, not quite. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, again, thank you all for being here. You should have two packets. If you don't, uh, they're on the back table there where Pam is standing. One has uh, an artistic rendering here of the Nicene Creed on the very front, and the other just simply says Confession of Belhar. So you should have both of these for the class today. So what are confessions? Why now? What's going on? We keep hearing this word Reformation, 500 years. What's going on? Does anybody know why is this year important in the Reformation? Somebody stick a poster on a church. Somebody named Martin Luther stuck a, <laughs> of course, I know, I know, stuck a, a put the 95 theses, uh, complaints against what was going on in the Catholic Church at the time, on um, the, the church door, which was kind of in that time, it sounds strange to us, but in that era, it was kind of the bulletin board. It was where you'd stick stuff if you wanted everybody to read it, because they'd walk by the church. So 95 complaints about the Catholic Church, not because he wanted to break away, but because he wanted to reform the church from within. Well, then they excommunicated him, and you, you know, you'll learn the rest in a few more weeks. But um, that is what, what differentiates us from the, that, that started the differentiation from the, the Roman Catholic Church for Europe and the West. And so, uh, and so we developed historically different from the Catholic Church. But today, uh, we are going to start by looking at two of the oldest creeds, the Nicene Creed, and these behind me, you've probably seen these before. Do we know where they're from? 
Right, these hang off the balcony, but Joe Oren graciously agreed to bring them down and fluff them up, and so we can look at the banners for the uh, creeds and confessions that we're studying. So here on the left, you have the Nicene Creed, the oldest creed that the whole church universal almost uh, agrees to, except for a few words here or there. Then you've got the Apostles' Creed, and these are the two of the oldest creeds. And I should really put this a few feet over because this is uh, several hundred years later. This is the Scots Confession. And these are the three that we'll be uh, studying a little bit more in depth today. But before we get there, um, the, the reason that these creeds, confessions are important is because they help us define what we believe about the Bible. So, Roman Catholic Church has certain traditions around the reading of Scripture. The Orthodox Church in the East has a certain way that they read and interpret Scripture and live out the faith. And we do the same. We have a certain tradition, way we read the Scriptures and reason and and, uh, process our tradition. And so the Confessions, this is the 2016 Presbyterian Book of Confessions, um, these confessions kind of uh, are a um, distillation of everything we believe. If you had to put it in a page or a few hundred pages, um, what do we believe and why this is it? Um, so this is, it's not just a stuffy old book that you use for, uh, a, you know, to hold open a door. This is a great way to uh, uh, in, to, to look at the history of the church in a devotional way. What did our forefathers and mothers believe about the Bible, about Christian living, about God? And this is, if you don't have a copy, this is the most recent, but you can pick up any of the older copies as well. What, uh, what did they believe? And how can their faith inform our faith? Okay, so... What is a confession, what is a creed, and what is a catechism? Does anyone want to throw in on this? Does anyone know the difference, or? Nobody. Okay, admission of probably guilt? Yes. Okay, so, um, or you have a confession, yeah, right, you confess your deepest, darkest secrets. It's, that's, that's one shade of meaning for the word confession. This is a slightly different one. So uh, the word comes from admit or speak and together. So we confess, proclaim together our faith and admit what we believe as our confession. Um, but then you also hear the word a lot, creed, right? Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed, and that comes from the Latin word, and I'm on page two now of your handout if you're following along. Uh, the word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. And so it, uh, like the Apostles' Creed, starts with I believe in God the Father. So the very first word uh, is that credo, creed. And then the word catechism, which we're not talking about any of the catechisms today, but in uh, a few weeks we'll talk about the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, And these are questions and answers of the faith, and they're particularly, uh, were crafted to be instructional tools um, to teach people about the faith, and particularly youth, but but really uh, all the faithful, the new people coming into the church. And so 
uh, <coughs> all of these creeds and confessions, you'll see there on page three of this packet, uh, there's, a, there's a whole outline here, one through 11, of all these creeds, confessions, catechisms, the shorter, longer declarations of Barman, all the way down, and each one of these documents were written in response to something. Rarely did people sit around and just think, I, I, you know what I wanna do today? I wanna write a creed. And then send it around to the whole church and make sure we all believe the same thing. No, often it, it was written in response to something. And we'll talk about those in a few minutes in more detail. But particularly, the earliest creeds were written around, uh, in response to uh, heresies, right? So Arius and Marcion were the two big uh, heresiarchs of that time. Uh, and they, they were saying such things as, we can't believe that the Old Testament is scripture and we only can look at a few of these books in the New Testament to believe who Jesus is, this should be our faith. That's what Marcion really believed. And so he said, that God you had in, in the Jewish God isn't Jesus, they're totally different. And the rest of the church said, whoa, 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 hold on, that can't be right. Let's look at this again. And so they said, if you're with him, you're professing a different faith, but for us, this is the faith we believe. So they drew a line in the sand saying, we're not there, this is who we are. This is the orthodox, little o, orthodox faith. Orthodox being right belief. And so uh, these early ones as we know them, right? Many of us uh, don't even have to open the hymnals to page 34 or 35, right? To uh, read out the confession, the apostles are Nicene creeds because we say them uh, several times, well, every, every Sunday we say one of them. Uh, and they, these in particular are short so that they can be easily memorized, right? If you think back to the era in which these were written, right, the fourth century for the Nicene Creed, Apostles' Creed is a very murky history, uh, stretching all over the first millennia, really, but, um, but they were written sh to be short because many people were still <coughs> illiterate, but they could memorize much better than we can memorize, and so I can, I can get this, I can, this is a clear distillation of the faith that we all together believe. And so, again, uh, these creeds, confessions, catechisms came together in this book. We have chosen particular ones. There are some that we don't quite agree with, some that are far too Lutheran, some uh, that, that show their, their denominational roots, and we say, that's not what we believe as Presbyterians, right? Um, so just as back in the day, we said, we're not, we don't believe what Marcion believes, uh, we as Presbyterians uphold these documents over and against others defining what we believe. And so, we're not talking about this book, don't be scared. This is the book of order. So, uh, part, this book of confessions is part one, and this is part two of our constitution in the Presbyterian Church USA. So these documents together define all of uh, our churches, denominations, as to what we believe. But what's kind of funny is just like scripture, there are tensions within the book of confessions, right? So uh, here you've got an example from the second Helvetic confession from the 16th century, we read, quote, 
we teach that baptism should not be administered in the church by women or midwives. Okay. But then over in 1983, we read in a brief statement of faith, which was included in the uh, uh, Presbyterian, United Presbyterian Church, that the same spirit, the Holy Spirit, calls women and men to all ministries of the church, right? So we as a denomination evolved in our understanding of women in ministry, but we still have and hold on to the second Helvetic confession. So even though there are some finer points that we say, we don't really uphold that, the documents kind of hold each other in tension, and that's one particular way. And uh, so we, we maintain the documents as they are in their original form. Sometimes there, as you go throughout the book, you'll see there are asterisks saying, uh, look at this other page or have, have in mind this when you're thinking about. Uh, but th that's just one idea and one, one uh, thing we should hold up. Um, the, the more modern uh, confessions uh, are a clearer expression of our modern day faith, but we don't get rid of the old. And then there at the bottom of page two, whenever we are looking at these, you're going to have some optional homework. I know you normally don't get homework in this class, but uh, I, always, I always like to give you a little more if you're, if you're interested and want to uh, study beyond this hour that we have together. Whenever we study any of these confessions, we should always first be aware of its historical context. As I spoke about a minute ago, Right? We had some heresy going on, lines in the sand, why was this written? But um, we also, and that helps us to understand the authors. Who were the authors that were writing these? Why were they writing these? But also, to whom were they writing these? Were they just, did they write them for themselves? One of these came out of someone's own personal confession. Or were they writing these for a body of the church, a particular country in which they were living. Who is this audience? And then as we read those five elements, and I thought of a sixth this morning we should really add here. Number one, also be aware of the order in which topics are presented because that tells you what's most important. What are we starting with? That's often most important in the writer's mind. The names and images for God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the particular theological emphases, anything that's unfamiliar or strange, the length of certain um, uh, sections, that could really imply importance, right? If you devote 10 pages to the ascension and only one page to God the Father, you might, it, something's really going on. We really think the ascension's important. Uh, and number six, which is not here, but I thought of this morning, is what's missing? Right, that's something we always have to ask ourselves when, when we read scripture, but even when we look at these confessions, we have to ask ourselves, what is missing from here? What do I expect to be here and what isn't here? And is that something that they, they left out on purpose or were they just not thinking about it? Was that not the era in which uh, that was the most important? Again, I saw some, uh, some new folks come in. You should have grabbed uh, two packets on your way in if you if you haven't, there they are in the corner. So uh, there on page three, we're not going through this whole, uh, this whole table today, but this is kind of an overview of where we're headed. And uh, again, today we're focusing on the Nicene, Apostles, and Scots. 
So one, two, and three. And we're going to actually go to the Apostles' Creed first because we say that most often. And uh, most of us probably uh, could stand up right now and recite this together. But do we ever sit back and think through it? What are the words that we're saying? What aren't we saying that maybe we should be? What's a little strange, right? So again, it's here in the very center of these banners. This is uh, the second in our book of confessions, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, And before we actually even get there, as we are, oh, now where did it go? There it is. Each of these banners is loaded with symbolism. What, uh, what is the creed or that confession all about? And so I wanna draw your attention here forward. And uh, these are representations of the official banners that, that uh, many ladies in the church made about uh, almost 10 years ago. And uh, so uh, I wanna lift up a few things. First, in the very background, we have this brown, somber color, uh, and that is supposed to represent the difficulty and rigor of the early church, the early early Christianity under persecution, but perhaps also early monasticism. Then you've got uh, the anchor cross on the top left, and that is security in Christ, as found by the apostles, and some of whom, of course, we know were fishermen. And then on the top right, you've got a fish. Many of us already know a fish is an ancient symbol of Christianity because the word in in the Greek, ichthus, uh, can be an acronym for Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, right? So it would be a secret way of, hey, are you a Christian? I'm a Christian. You put a little fish in the sand and you don't even have to say, you just know. Okay, you're a Christian, good. We can trust each other. Um, In the early church, when there was still lots of persecution going on, uh, that was a key symbol in particular, and has stayed with us now for 2,000 years. Then uh, we've got the chalice at the bottom left, of course, the Lord's Supper, and then the upside-down cross. Anyone have a clue what that might be about? Crucifixion of Peter. Fabulous. Yes, indeed, Beth. So Peter, one of the chief apostles, of course, in legend, is said to have been crucified upside down uh, because He said he was unworthy to be crucified in the same way as Jesus. So this is the Apostles' Creed, and uh, it would be great if I could just tell you that it goes all the way back to the Apostles, but we don't quite think it does. It's it's, it's a legend, um, and the history, as I said already, is very murky on uh, the Apostles' Creed, Um, but it it has some... uh, early church language. And so even if it wasn't written by the apostles, we can easily say uh, that it goes back to them in language. What they would have proclaimed, what came right out of scripture, it's pretty good representation of what uh, the apostles would have said. So I've already uh, lifted up Marcion before, um, but it was in this area, era in particular Uh, that Marcion was proposing the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New. He believed Jesus was a God of love and mercy in contrast to that tyrannical God of the Old Testament. So he also rejected scripture and cut up certain, he really liked the Gospel of Luke, except get away, get that uh, gospel, or that infancy narrative out of here and anything that's too Jewish, he just wanted to cut out. Marcion, um, we, we may say that uh, Marcin was an anti-Semite, I don't know. But um, 
uh, in response to that, once again, the uh, early church, particularly the Roman Christians, developed an early form of this creed to draw that line in the sand. You believe that, but this is really what we believe. And uh, I want to actually give you a few minutes at your table. So if there's only a few of you, or if there's a lot of you, you want to spread out, I want you to take a look on the other page, the facing page, page five. You'll see at the top left there, the Apostles' Creed. But instead of reciting it together, just like we do every Sunday, I want you to take just about three or four minutes to look at it and ask those questions. What here is, uh, what is the order of things? What are the names and images for God? What are the theological emphases? Is something strange? Or they use weird names that you don't expect? Is anything longer than others? What is important? So I'll give you about three minutes, three or four minutes to just look there at the Apostles' Creed, top of page five. What is theologically relevant? Go. Let me put the recording back on there, or the uh, microphone back on. So what have we discovered uh, in not just saying it every Sunday, but actually looking at the words? Is there anything here that surprised it, anybody? Did I hear an oh yeah from Beth over here? Bethy? What was surprising? He rose again. And I, I have to wonder if that's an English versus, uh, that's an English translation issue, and it may be an, uh, maybe we say rose again and thinking it's a second time in English, um, but it just means like to be resurrected. Uh, I'm not sure, that's a really good question. I'm gonna, I'm gonna look into that and try to get back to you for, the, for that. Anyone else? Oop, anybody. Anybody who's got their hands up. Very specific note of who he suffered under. Okay, right. So there's a name here, a specific name. Um, why are we confessing our faith and mentioning Pontius Pilate? So I think I think this has to do with uh, earlier in the line. It says he suffered under Pontius Pilate. So um, there was uh, an. Or another heresy of the early church was called docetism, which comes from uh, the Greek word which means to seem. And they, they claimed that Jesus only seemed to die. It looked like it, but he didn't really. That's how they got around the, the resurrection and the death. And they got around all that and said, he didn't really seem to, he just seemed to die. So I, I think, and I, I could be proven wrong here, I'm, I'm not sure, but my guess is that this is about really saying, no, no, it wasn't just that he seemed to suffer, he really suffered. And not just any kind of suffering, it was that specific one that we know about in the Gospels, Pontius Pilate. So it, it's, it's refuting docetism, but also uh, anchoring it historically. 
with Pontius Pilate. Yeah. blocking on it. The EEG, oh. they could have told whether he was really dead or not. Oh, there you go. There you go. Okay. So they, they probably didn't have that. Okay, any other uh, at the back table there? You've got a lot of hands there. There, A great conversation at that table. I've always had trouble with he descended into hell. Mm -hmm. So sometimes when I do say the Apostle Creed, I don't say that. And okay. when it says he rose again, I don't say again. Oh, interesting. Okay. So <laughs> I'm going to answer your question, but by, by first telling a story. Um, when I was in seminary, my, uh, one of my theology professors was Andrew Purvis, uh, and he told a great story of a student who came up to him one day and said, I, read this, I say this creed I, every single Sunday, but I do that very same thing. I, I, that the, the Debbie was just mentioning, I don't say that born of a Virgin Mary. Come on, she wasn't really a virgin. That's ridiculous. Or, or they, you know, he, was, he was listing out his problems with the Apostles' Creed. And, and he said, I'm just struggling. How can I profess this faith if I don't believe the third line, the fifth line, the seventh line? You know, if I don't believe these things, how can I say this? And his response is, it's not your creed, it's our creed. And so we say it together because it's okay. Debbie, if sometimes you can't say he descended into hell, it's still being said. It's still being professed and proclaimed. Now, that particular line is pretty strange, right? We don't talk a lot about that. And that whole paragraph down there at the bottom of page four I'm not going to read it right now, but that comes uh, from uh, Marcus Borg and John Dominic Crossan's book, The Last Week. He talks at length, the whole chapter, all about what is this descent into hell business all about, and it is mentioned in the New Testament. It is, uh, I think it's 1 Peter 3, off the top of my head, I didn't actually write it down, um, and there are some accounts that very, very strange passage in Matthew, uh, I think it's Matthew 27 near the end, 50 to 53 maybe, uh, where Jesus opens these tombs and there are dead people walking around in the city. Even though it doesn't specifically mention it, that is thought to reference his descent into hell because in descending into hell, um, Jesus uh, was thought to traditionally preach to those saints who have gone before and it's not a hell as we think of it today. Remember, uh, it's not like a place of eternal torment and there's only one place and you're gonna be there forever. It's not that traditional understanding of hell. It's the thought, it's, it's Sheol, right? It's the it's a strange underworld place that's not necessarily torture. It's kind of where everybody goes. So there's faithful and maybe not the faithful. And so in descending to hell, Jesus, the, the theology behind this is that Jesus preaches to the faithful and, and liberates them from Sheol and brings them out. That's why the dead people are walking around the city and that's why for, uh, Peter talks about it, First uh, Peter talks about it. So we have just a few more minutes for this. Yep. Yes, I'm with her. I never repeat that particular okay. portion. However, if anybody's read the gospel according to Peter, there's where that comes from. The Gospel of Peter goes into great detail mm -hmm. about Jesus descending into hell and casting out the devils. And right. also, as you mentioned, in First and Second Peter, that fits right in with the same P 
Peter background. So it does come, the, the, it is mentioned in other books outside of the New Testament written around the same time, so I'm glad you brought that up again. It, but, it's, but, um, but it is mentioned in the New Testament canon and uh, Borg and Crossan's paragraph down here, if you're wondering what that's all about, I encourage you to read it. He, they essentially say it's there in the tradition, but what happened was when the New Testament was being written down, it was, it was not as important or kind of confusing. And how do I write this story well? Um, because it, it, it can be uh, a little confusing. Um, it says down there in the middle of the paragraph that third, the harrowing of hell, meaning bringing people out of uh, Sheol, could not fit easily into any sequence as a go- and the ending of a gospel narrative. How could Jesus arise at the, as the, at, at the head of the martyred and righteous ones and then appear to the disciples and give them their apostolic mandate? So it's a little, it doesn't fit in the sequencing of how we tell the story. We want to, it's not just about telling the story, it's about telling it well, and it just doesn't quite fit. So do you have something to add there? Yeah, yeah when they did the first English Book of Common Prayer, one of the things that they added as an optional reading was he went into the place of departed spirits. Ooh, I like that. And so in the modern Nicene Creed, a modern Apostles' Creed, he says he descended to the dead. Oh, okay. Instead of into hell. Yes. Fabulous. Okay, we've got time for just one more comment, so you pick. <laughs> maybe, the, maybe whoever's closest. There we go. Uh, two questions. First, I kn- some of the creeds are very short. Some of them are v- confessions are very long. And I was curious as to why. And the uh, second question. In, the, in our hymnal, we often refer to the Nicene Creed and then the Apostles' Creed. But in terms of chronology, the Apostles' Creed came well, first versus the Nicene Creed. Or uh, the Nicene Creed is tra- and and actually, it's funny you should say this. I'm not. We don't. We don't have it here in our packet. But other denominations. I've been looking at their Book of Confessions, and they flip flop. And the reason behind this un- uh, lack of clarity in chronology is because. We have a firm date for Nicene Creed, right? 325, then there was a later uh, council that changed a few things. But Apostles' Creed stretches from 180 all the way to the 8th century, and it underwent some minor changes, and so it was still being developed. That's why it's second. Regarding your first question of the length, um, the early church, uh, it, it was a didactic tool to teach and to make sure people could memorize it. So the, the later you go, uh, with the invention of the printing press, uh, with the, uh, the increase in, in people being able to read, um, that they, began, they became longer and longer and longer, right? Westminster is about 120 pages, I think, in this book, um, and Apostles and Nicene each have one. So uh, they wanted to be, and later on, they wanted to say, they wanted to clarify everything. Can we hold it till, till, till later? <laughs> okay, throw it out. What, what you got? One of the things that, that bothers me is this picking and choosing uh, what to believe and what not to believe. Right. That's a slippery slope. Right, picking and choosing Actually, what to believe and what not to. You're mm-hmm. going to throw out critical stuff. Agreed. So, uh, and that's, 
That's why we have this book of confessions, to clearly define what we believe and what we don't believe, right? It's, it's that I'm defining what I believe over and against somebody else. But uh, as this other book that I have that uh, we won't talk about too much, Creeds of the Churches, this is, there are, there are more than we're gonna study, right? Lutherans have Augsburg, uh, there's the Athanasius Creed, which you, I invite you to read this uh, for homework before next, next time, that we don't uphold, we don't believe for particular reasons, uh, and as, that, as will become clear if you read Athanasius. Uh, okay, we are going to move on. Uh, to the Nicene Creed. So this is all the way there on the left in the green banner. And as we look at the banner, let us uh, just consider all the imagery therein. So central, uh, the cross, right? But it's a very, very long cross with a point at the bottom. And this is not just a cross, it's also a sword, right? So Nicaea, Nicene Constantinople, Palatine, I don't actually, uh, that's, a, that's a hard word to pronounce there. They, uh, this comes out of the time when Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity. And if you remember that old story, he, he had a dream and there was the, in this sign you shall conquer, and it was a cross. And so he said, okay, well, if I win this, if I win this, then I'll become Christian. Well, he won this war, and this is uh, oversimplification, obviously. We could go into much greater detail. But he became Christian and wanted to unify the empire behind, uh, with Christianity. But he realized these people are fighting, and these people are fighting, and they're all Christians. They don't believe the same thing. So he said, let's make sure we can unify. Let's write a creed. Or let's write some unifying document. And that's where this came out of. Then uh, behind the cross, you have a green triangle, uh, and this represents the Trinity with the three symbols uh, at each point of the, the triangle. Top left, you have the, the hand reaching down, and that's supposed to represent God the Father. On the bottom, you have the Cairo. Those are the first two letters for Christ in, the, in Greek. Uh, and that was used by Constantine on shields and helmets of his army. Uh, he really wanted to win. And then there in the top right, you've got the dove. Of course, that represents the Holy Spirit. And the crowns all around represent the rule and glory of God. Okay. So that is the Nicene Creed. And this was particularly written, so I'm on the top of page six now, the second bullet point if you're following along. And uh, this was particularly written in response to the heresiarch, and this is, this is a great Scrabble or Bananagrams word if you don't know it. Heresiarch means the first person who started a heresy. Uh, so, and, and this one, it was in response to Arius. So Arius was a priest, and he asserted that the divine Christ was created by God before the beginning of time. So the divinity of Christ was similar to God, but not the same. He was not of the same essence. So people thought, okay, if, if that could be true, let's think about it for a while. Oh, but, but then you have to think about salvation. And if Jesus isn't God, but is like God, does that mean we can still have salvation uh, and, and union with Christ? And people said, no. That doesn't quite make sense. And so 
the Nicene Creed stands in opposition to uh, the beliefs of Arius. So you see some similarities, right? If you flip back to page five for a moment, you see similarities in the, the first two creeds, right? I believe in God. Okay, we believe in one God, similar. Next paragraph down, Jesus Christ is only Son, our Lord. One Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of God. I believe in the Holy Ghost. We believe in the Holy Spirit, right? So it's a similar in its structure, but then you get into the, the wording of it. Pontius Pilate shows up again, um, and you get some, you get some, funny, uh, some funny things here. Um, but the, t- the two most distinctive that are uh, of note are the words um, of this, well, Actually, it is one, in, in our translation, it is of one being with the Father. So again, this is refuting Arius's belief that they're similar, and the, the Greek word for this is homoousios. So this means same substance, but what, Arius was trying to say is, oh, no, 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 it's not the same, it's homoi usias, it's similar. One little iota, really an iota, changes the theology. And so that's, uh, that may very well be where that, you know, an iota, it, it makes all the difference here because this is heresy and that is not. So um, the other one, um, as I, as I said at the beginning of class, the Nicene Creed is the earliest to so the whole church. This is before, right, this is well before there's any, any whiff of Protestantism. There is the church. Everyone is tr- trying to believe the same thing. Granted, there are people like Arius and Marcion and others who believe different things, but we're really trying to systematize the same belief. So this is about as united as we get. And with the Nicene Creed, uh, this is professed by the whole church today, right? Um, Except for maybe some fringe groups. But uh, the Eastern Church, the Eastern Big O Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Church, those churches would uphold Nicene, the Nicene Creed. Catholic Church, this is the creed. Protestant churches, almost across the board, uphold this. So this is our... When we, when we say, on page 34 in the hymnal, it says, let us profess the faith of the universal church. That's why. Because everybody today, if you're a Christian, you probably believe in uphold Nicaea. Except. Except for this one word. And so this is a Latin word. It's, it's pronounced filioque. And it means and the Son. So, and the Son. And it appears uh, on the bottom of page five, that bottom uh, right quadrant, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, filioque. So, this was added after the Council of Nicaea back in 325 by the West. So the Eastern Church doesn't say that part. And you're probably thinking, okay, what's the big deal? The Holy Spirit comes from the Father or the Spirit 
or Father or the Son and the Son, does it really make a big difference? The East would say it makes all the difference because it, it goes back to your core understanding of who God is and how God in the Holy Trinity interacts with God's self. And so this was not the only reason, but one of the main theological reasons for the great schism later of the West and the East. And I think it's 1054. Let's see if that's right. 1054, or about there. So this was um, one word that made all the difference for the East. Now I'm not gonna read everything and you can you can look at these, most of these quotes here on these pages is not for me to read to you, it's for you to go home and if you want to know more, what was he talking about? Here's where I'm getting this from. So here's uh, uh, right there under theological distinctives, three lines down it says, and from the sun. So most Protestants, Roman Catholics, uh, there is another phrase added here. The spirit is said to proceed not only from the father but also the son, skipping the next line. The inclusion of this provision in the creed has been hotly contested, right? Uh, and this was actually, this actually came into the creed to combat Arianism in Spain in the Middle Ages. So Arius didn't die out after this creed came around. His followers kept going and kept spreading their heresies. Um, and so um, it, it has to do with the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's important because uh, where does the power lie? Where does the authority lie? Is it distinctly in the Father? And the Father is the one who begot or, or, or birthed the Son and then sporantized, or, or, or not sporantized, uh, breathe forth the spirit? How, what is the relationship here? Um, if you think this isn't important, right, just, just look at all those paternity tests, DNA tests out there. Who, who comes from who? This is what we're talking about. How are they related to each other? Uh, and uh, here at the very end, um, it's, uh, yeah, so the same quote from uh, George Parsenia says, the father is no longer the fount of divinity, but shares that role with the son. So um, I, it, it's complicated. We only have another 15 minutes for this class, so I don't want to uh, dig into this too much more. But uh, before, we, before we move on, I want to open the floor. Do we have any questions or comments about the Nicene Creed? And Dan is, Dan is running to get the mic, so we will. Thank God for emperors. emperors. Mm. Might have just been a bunch of different uh, issues. Okay, so uh, he was saying, "Thank God for emperors," because without the one emperor Constantine for trying to unify uh, the church here. And we have another question back here. Well. Um, one of the things we had noticed with the Apostles' Creed was that mu not much was said about the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. And so it's intriguing to me that now in the Nicene Creed where they do start to talk more about the Holy Spirit, it creates so much problems. Right. Um, and, and so it's almost like saying less is more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it is funny when you talk about Langthedith, and that's a, that's a great point. I saw many of you 
really comment when you were talking in groups about the Apostles' Creed, how that Jesus section is just so huge, and God and Holy Spirit are tiny. Same thing in the Nicene Creed. Uh, and uh, yeah, when you really get to the Holy Spirit, in the, the Apostles, it doesn't even talk about the Spirit. It just says, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Okay, the church, communion of saints, forgive us of sins. Yeah, those are connected, but who... Right, right, it's like TBD, like we'll, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit at some other point. Same thing in the Nicene Creed. Um, we get a little more, uh, particularly who has spoken through the prophets. Uh, but that's, that's only really inspiration of scripture and, and um, the, the prophets who spoke against various issues throughout uh, the past. But who is the Holy Spirit? And that comes down to, uh, proceeds from the Father and the Son, Filioque. And that's, um, we may not, in this, this point in history, and I'd still say today, we may not really know who the Holy Spirit is, but um, we want to be clear about what the Holy, who the Holy Spirit is not. And so that's, that's part of that schism between East and West. Yes, Fred, another question over here? Uh, yes. It's my understanding, and I can stand, I can be corrected, but the doctrine of the Trinity does not appear in the in the New Testament, the doctrine of the Trinity was developed post Christ, post the apostles. And I was wondering if you could, what you're discussing ties in, in, into my mind. Yes, the perfectly. Tr Trinity. Perfectly. When so and how is that developed? Yes, so that's been, um, it's a great question. So the question, just in case you didn't hear it, is all about the development of the doctrine of the Trinity. Is that something that uh, was in the New Testament? And rightly, the answer is no. There, the word Trinity does not appear in the New Testament. But we get uh, glimpses at how God is three and one. Three persons, one essence, one uh, substance. And... Um, so like Jesus, uh, the Great Commission, he said, go forth baptizing in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why not just Yahweh? Why not just the name of God? Why not just baptizing him in Jesus? No, it's these three, there's something special about these three together. And uh, there are other places throughout. We, I almost taught a Trinity class this fall. If it wasn't the 500 year, the 500 year uh, anniversary of the Reformation, I probably, we, that's the class we'd be in right now. But um, you see it in uh, some of the earliest uh, Greek manuscripts of the New Testament that even though there, this was before the creeds were written and developing this, this theology that uh, even scribes would set the names of God apart differently. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit, wherever they appeared, they were set apart in a very different way, the nomina sacra. They were stylized, they were sometimes uh, written in different font, a different color, a different uh, uh, handwriting. And so even from er early as uh, the second century, early second century, people are, are getting on to this train of really God is Trinity. Pam? Holy Same thing. Why haven't they <coughs> updated the Apostles' Creed then to say Holy Spirit? Why is it still Holy Ghost? And why do we still say our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and not our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name? I think it has to do with tradition and I never talk about Holy Ghost from a pulpit in a sermon. <coughs> Excuse me, but 
Um, I always talk about the Holy Spirit, but ghost is uh, an appropriate term, right? It comes from the German, the Geist. It's Old English. It's, it's the term we would have used before the Latin word spirit, spiritus, came into modern parlance probably five, six hundred years ago. To what does the reference communion of saints mean? Ooh. Dan wants to know, do we need a Presbyterian Ouija board? <laughs> Presbyterian Ouija board. I never thought I'd get that one. Um, that's a good one. And that's another hotly, that's, you're, you're particularly talking about in the Apostles' Creed. Is that right? Sorry. No, no, that's okay. Somebody has to define who's a saint. And when does that happen? Ooh. At the beginning of life or at the end of life? And am I allowed to assume I'm a saint and talk to Dick Barnard? Um, we, I, I, it's very confusing to me. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, the communion of saints is, is a strange thing. And I think in most Protestant circles, that's probably one of the more hotly debated parts of the Apostles' Creed. Um, yeah. We've got about six minutes, so we're n- we can't really go there because um, we've, st- we've got to go to the Scots. But, um, but bring that question back. Maybe we'll try to, try to address that if we have time uh, before our class is over. Do you want to throw in on that, Zev? Hold that question for when I talk about Martin Luther. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> so reminder, so these four weeks... I'm teaching on the confessions, and then I turn, uh, turn things over to Zev, who will be speaking on the Reformation in particular. Uh, and so, yes, bring that question back in four weeks, Beth. <laughs> All right, let us go then to page seven of your packets, the Scots Confession. This is the third banner over here up on the stage on the right. So I draw your attention to it. You'll notice we've got some similar imagery what do we see that's in all three? Before I tell you what's, oh, very good. We've got the cross in all three. But then we've got some other stuff going on too. What's this bush on fire? Where's this boat? What's this, oh, we've got a sword again. Is it connected to the, the cross? Not quite. So uh, you've got this, it's a light blue, but it is a blue shield. And that is the back, uh, that background color is supposed to represent the Church of Scotland, right? Scots Confession. Uh, came out in 1560 to orient ourselves here. So these two creeds come from the early church. And then the next set of creeds that we'll be discussing, including Scots, comes to us from Reformation era. Uh, So after Luther pounded those 95 theses on the church door, but then then Scotland took it even further and uh, reformed faith, John Knox, right? This is where we are. So then you have the tartan, the X-shaped cross, and this is a form called the St. Andrew's Cross, he being the apostle who is thought to bring the gospel to Scotland. And the tartan or plaid is that of the Hamilton clad, Hamilton clan, at least in the traditional one, uh, in honor of the first martyr of the Scottish Reformation, Patrick Hamilton. And then you've got that circle behind the cross. This is uh, an ancient form of the cross, uh, the, the Celtic cross. A ship, uh, a great symbol for the church, uh, also talking certainly about the distribu- the, uh, how the faith is being spread throughout the world. The, sh- the Bible and sword, Paul calls the word of God sword of the spirit, uh, and the sharpness of John Knox preaching, 
of the word was a major power for reformation in Scotland. Then finally, at the very bottom, the burning bush, which cannot be consumed. So this is reminding us of Moses' Sinai experience. So it's a symbol of God's presence and God's call. And that is the chief symbol of the church in Scotland. Okay. So this is much longer. This is uh, probably 40 or so pages long. So the whole thing does not appear here. If you want to see the whole of the, I invite you to purchase a book of confessions. If you're a reader, you like the book, but the whole thing is actually available on the, the church, uh, the Presbyterian um, church's website for free as a PDF download. So if you're an e-reader, um, and the, at one point, the link was, was in this packet, but it must have, I think it's actually hidden behind. Was it somewhere? No, that's not it, unfortunately. I think it's hidden behind this image on, on the very front of the cover. So, sorry about that oversight. But you'll notice there are 25 sections, and these just aren't one-word uh, uh, statements on each. These are lengthy paragraphs. But let's talk more uh, about the the history uh, going on at the time. So, uh, Queen Regent Mary uh, of Guise died in her sleep in 1860, and so the Protestant nobility of Scotland was able to secure English recognition of Scottish sovereignty in the Treaty of Edinburgh. I didn't know this stuff last week, so this is all new for me too. And so to the Scots, this favorable conclusion to the Civil War with Mary's French-supported forces represented deliverance, providential deliverance. So Scottish Parliament says Scotland is Protestant. And so they asked clergy to write up a confession of faith. Yeah, we've got Nicene Creed. Yes, we have the Apostles' Creed. But what do we as the Church of Scotland today in 1560, what do we believe? So six ministers, including John Knox, as we know that church up, up down the street in North Canton, John Knox Presbyterian, named for this very person, John Knox, who with uh, five other ministers uh, wrote this Scots Confession, completing the whole thing in just four days. And it was ratified by the Scottish Parliament as, quote, doctrine grounded upon the infallible word of God. So if you look there, again, 25 different sections. Some of them I've indented so that you can see we've got three sections to talk about God. Uh, then down in number six, we've got seven, eight, nine, 10, 11 that all talk about Jesus. So again, we like to talk more about Jesus. We're not quite sure what to do with God and the Holy Spirit all the time, but Jesus, we can talk about Jesus. Then the Holy Spirit, and then that the Kirk. This is not uh, Kirk from uh, St Star Trek, right? This is the Scottish word for church that they still use today. Um, so you'll see that all over the Scots Confession, the Kirk, and that's what that means. Just simply church. Uh, immortality of the souls, the sacraments, right, are really big there. Down to the civil magistrate, 25, the gifts given to the Kirk. So I think that clock's fast. And I do have another three minutes. So um, the Scots Confession sets forth three marks of the true faithful church. These are the true preaching of the word of God, right administration of the sacraments of Christ Jesus, and ecclesiastical discipline. 
whereby vice is repressed and virtue is nourished. So, preaching, sacraments, discipline. If you had to summarize the whole of the document, which unfortunately we don't have time to read today, that's it. Preaching, sacraments, discipline. And, and that kind of comes across in the Book of Order, right? All these hundreds and hundreds of years later, there is a whole section on here on worship, the right administration of the sacraments. What is a sermon? What is a, like what, how do we define the preaching of the word? And there's a whole section on here about discipline. So it comes uh, to bear in the modern Presbyterian church even still. There's just two sections uh, I didn't, I'd like us to read here under number one. Under God, it says, we confess and acknowledge one God alone to whom alone we must cleave, whom alone we must serve, whom only we must worship, and in whom alone we put our trust, who is eternal, infinite, immeasurable, incomprehensible, omnipotent, invisible, one in substance, here that substance where this com comes back again, and yet distinct in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost right? Not Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost. Uh, and then the ascension here, I, I referenced earlier that the length of a section, the length of a particular section may indicate how important it is for theology. Again, uh, ascension in Scott's confession is over a page long, which most people, if, if pressed, would say, okay, he ascended in heaven, period. What, what's more to, to go on? but they really see the ascension as the, the climax, almost, uh, one, of the, one of the climaxes of uh, Christ's redemptive actions on earth, and that in his ascension, he is leading the way for us to heaven, right? So I just wanna read this uh, small paragraph here on the ascension, number 11. We do not doubt but that the self-same body, so the very same body, which was born of the virgin was crucified, dead, and buried, and which did rise again, did ascend into the heavens for the accomplishment of all things, where in our name and for our comfort he has received all power in heaven and earth, for he sits at the right hand of the Father, having received his kingdom, the only advocate and mediator for us. I could talk more about that, but I want to leave another two minutes for questions, if I may. I know we're a little after time here. We need to get to, we need to, get to worship. But uh, I've thrown a lot at you, and if you have any questions, I want to open the floor uh, to see if I can answer a few before we break. Does that mean time? Ah, perfect. No questions. I'm that thorough. You, you, you got it all? Or is it like drinking from, is it like sipping from a, a fire hydrant? You just feel overwhelmed and don't know. Kent? Self-same, it, it's, it's just a way uh, to say that he doesn't uh, have a different body. Uh, and that was really important in, uh, we don't talk about it as much anymore, but the resurrection of the body is something that goes back the debates go back to the early church, right? The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the body, so, uh, so we understand it. And so uh, resurrection of the body implies that this body will come back, this very body. Yeah, I'm, maybe, maybe it'll be healed and it'll be perfected and it'll be made better, but it's still gonna be somehow this body. And so they wanted to emphasize that for Jesus, that's what happened to him, and that's what will happen to us.
Any other? I want to look like I'm 20, not now. Go for it. Yeah, you want to look like you're 20 you, when you were 20? Fabulous. Okay, we must go to worship. The Lord be with you all. And also with you. Thank you very much. <laughs>